This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, our subject matter, our focus, uh, contemporary spirituality. Our guest today, Professor Paul Mueller Ortega. He is recognized internationally as one of the world's most highly respected and renowned academic scholars in the field of Indian religion and Hindu Tantra. He uh, taught at the university, I mean at Michigan State, and also at Rochester University, and uh, has lots to tell us about uh, Indian philosophy, and we have lots of questions. So thank you so very much, uh, uh, Paul, for taking the time to come on with us today. My delight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Paul, uh, at the risk of making you sound old, you, you've been involved with uh, the teachings that uh, come from India and have influenced so many of our lives for almost half a century now, or by the time people hear this, at least <laughs> a half a century. And, um, um, and you started out, like many of us did in the 60s, as a seeker and became a practitioner and then a scholar of, reputable, bona fide, Ph.D.-type scholar, unlike amateurs <laughs> like me. And, uh, and, then, and, now, and then at a certain point you left academia and are, are teaching on your own. Um, give us a little a thumbnail background of uh, what got you interested in this and uh, uh, you know, what brought you to your current work. Mm, yes, um, Actually, from the time I was a little kid, I grew up in Venezuela in South America. My dad worked for an oil company, and we lived in the middle of the Amazon jungle. And um, uh, there were, we had just a house full of books. They were a very uh, sort of reader family. We just read and read. And there were all these books about India that my father had purchased. And from the time I was a little kid, I remember seeing books about uh, Paramahansa Yogananda and uh, Indian art, Indian temples, uh, um, the, uh, literature, etc., and so on. I was very fascinated by it all, which is just very amazing in a certain sense. My dad is from New Jersey originally, and my mother's from Spain, and so you know it was not really something that could be predicted. Um, as an undergraduate, I, I wanted to study Sanskrit, and um, I was an undergraduate at Yale, and at the time, the very, very famous professor of Sanskrit who had taught there for decades had just passed away. So I spent a lot of time trying to teach myself Sanskrit, which I don't recommend. And then in 1974, I enrolled in graduate school at the University of California and started formally studying Sanskrit. And um, it was about two or three years into my study of Sanskrit with a very, very wonderful uh, scholar who's one of the, he's really one of the great um, American scholars of yoga, Gerald James Larson, uh, who's really literally written the book. There's an encyclopedia of philosophy in about 12 volumes, and he's written a huge, massive 800-page uh, encyclopedia volume on the classical texts of yoga and also the allied philosophy of Sankhya, both of the dualistic systems. And uh, so under his tutelage, um, he's the one who introduced me to this tradition called Kashmir Shaivism. Huh. It's a, a body of text that came from Srinagar in northern India. Wow. Um, I, I have to have the pleasure of hearing Jerry Larson speak on a couple of occasions. Mm -hmm. You know him, yeah. It must, be, must have been terrific to study right, with right. him. Uh, Paul, I have a he, question. Uh, you, you've taught uh, on the university level. You are teaching uh, comparative religions, religious studies, uh, Sanskrit as it relates, I, I would think, to Hinduism. And uh, right. when, when you teach, when you're in academics, 
I, I had uh, I have a friend that's a professor of comparative religions, religious studies, and people always saying, which one do you believe in? And, and it, it's right. sort of like you don't have to be a practitioner of a religion to teach religious studies. But from your background, uh, having, uh, uh, especially in Hinduism, where there's a lot of um, spiritual practices, uh, was it a, 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 a problem or difficult separating your own practice, spiritual practices, from uh, your academic teachings? And were there people in the academic community who uh, might have criticized you or others who were involved in spiritual practices or deep beliefs in particular religions uh, when they yes. were in the I mean, academic I, world? Yeah, For sure, certainly. I mean, this is a whole... It's a whole topics conversation, and it you know gets us into complexities about the comparative religion or the history of religions as a field having its origin primarily in Christian theology, and then branching out to study other religions, so to speak. So that then, um, and it's a whole you know problematic in anthropology and so on about insider outsider looking at things uh, from various perspectives. Um, certainly for myself and my own teaching. Um, in the university level, it, you know, there is a discipline of observing a boundary between a certain degree of um, insightful and passionate and creative presentation and a sort of even deep presentation of materials from various traditions and then uh, inciting someone into wanting to be a practitioner or to convert, uh, et cetera, and so on. And I mean, at the same time, obviously, uh, undergraduates in particular, I mainly taught undergraduates both at Michigan State and the University of Rochester, are seeking. I mean, so many of them are, they're looking for meaning, they're looking for value, they're looking for truth, they're looking for some kind of significance. And so um, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting dance in a certain sense to uh, speak about something that I'm, I'm extraordinarily involved in, both as an academic scholar and as a practitioner, and observe that boundary. And then I think that, you know, I, I was in academia formally. I mean, I'm still a scholar, obviously, but I retired after about 25 years of teaching. Um, and it was, that was one of the motivations, was to be able to be free to articulate a kind of insider practitioner's perspective mm -hmm. in a way that was not bound by the discipline of, of, of academia. And it's a whole different conversation that in other other branches of academia, people do not respect that boundary. I mean, we get into politics or sociology, or and I don't want right, to really right. get into that. But you know, so <clears throat> um, but yeah, it was a it was an interesting challenge. Well, can I? I just want to ask one follow up question to that. We've had other scholars uh, on the pro on the program. Uh, who've had similar experiences because they were not just scholars but also uh, practitioners, and some were raised in in the tradition, in uh, the Hindu tradition, or so forth. So there's this. How would, how do you feel about being um, thought of as possibly not objective because you are also a practitioner, as opposed to having special insight because you are a practitioner? And I mean, I think that that's, you know, I think these m m were certainly concerns that went through my professional mind as, you know, I, I mean, I attended American Academy of Religion, the big, huge conference in, in my field for 25 years in a row, and it was always a topic of, of conversation. Quite mm -hmm. honestly, these things are really long gone in terms of my own uh, particular approach to all of this, this mm -hmm. tradition that I've studied. Um, articulates precisely the potent synergy between the 
the, the very systematic, and we could even call it intellectual study of a variety of very intricate and sophisticated teachings about consciousness, about reality, about identity, about the whole journey of life, and says that though there is there is the assertion of the necessity for that form of study, but that form of study must be illuminated. It must be made potent and writ- enriched in, in a certain sense by initiatory practice um, mm. uh, and so on. And that 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 uh, a thousand years ago in Srinagar, these great masters were speaking about exactly this about the potent synergy that happens when there is both kinds of knowledge. There's an intellectual knowledge. And there's an experiential knowledge, and that when both of them are very powerfully activated, mm-hmm. something ignites and is extraordinarily powerful, and is also extraordinarily liberative. That this was this was part of their path, in a certain sense. Was this, it was not the the abandonment of of the mind or the critique of the mind. We know there are mystical traditions that criticize the mind as a problem, or language, or philosophy as an obstacle to be overcome. This is not the case in the the Shaiva traditions of Kashmir, there was, there was very highly intellectual uh, traditions, but there was the understanding that the, understa- the, the, the deep insight uh, into high teachings about reality must be supported by the evolving and refining and growing, mm-hmm. um, sharpening acuity of experience uh, deep within. And then that in the absence of that, uh, fundamentally, uh, their critique, their corresponding critique to us from a thousand years ago, is that one remains at the surface, one remains at, at a kind of a thickened level of reality in which the, the quickening and the melting and the opening and the, the, the illuminating of the whole matter uh, is, is, does not take place. It does not take place to any, um, to any real degree. And mm. so, mm. I, mean, I mean, this is the, yeah, so, yeah. Hey, Paul, uh, uh, in your study of, of, of uh, Hinduism, uh, of these religious traditions, uh, there are many systems of yoga, many systems of meditation, right. on and on. But uh, you, you are the founder of Blue Throat Yoga. Uh, was that a synthesis of other things you'd studied, or why did you feel it necessary to start something uh, new? Well, I think that, you know, it's, th- this is a, something that happens in life. Uh, in other words, that given the marketplace of, uh, of spirituality writ large that we live in, um, really coming clean and identifying oneself in terms of where, what one's uh, progenitors are. Who's your father? Who's your mother? Who's your grandparents, mm-hmm. in a sense, in a, in a spiritual sense? Um, you know, where has all of this come from? But then also acknowledging that children are not clones of their parents at least mm-hmm. in most cases, right. and that there's something new that emerges as different things come together. And I think that, you know, wanting to be uh, uh, transparent about the fact that in my own life, I have practiced with two um, meditation teachers and, and served under their tutelage for many, many years, and then also in academia, and then also a very, very long um, time of daily um, practice of my own, uh, which continues to this day, and so that the the melding of all of those is was not able to really be fit on. They couldn't fit under any pre-existing category, and I wanted to just be transparent about that and say, yes, what I'm offering comes out of this background. These are, you know, we had more time for something. I guess I'd spell it out in detail, but you know, there there are at least four or five different streams in a certain sense that coalesce into uh, what I'm offering, and then wanting to 
wanting to you know make that available and not be allied to or under the umbrella of some pre-existing group of one mm-hmm. sort or another. And I think, I mean, for me, one of the most important things is that there be access to authoritative sources of practice and of teaching, and that, that there's a lot of creativity that's out there, but how grounded is that creativity in the, in the confecting of different traditions in the authoritative mm-hmm. texts, the authoritative sources, the access to these extraordinary, very high, very complex texts from the Shaiva tradition, which were fundamentally even, I mean, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, were even largely unknown even in India. They, they represent what, without sounding too melodramatic about it, a kind of a lost tradition mm-hmm. of, of spirituality that yet is extraordinarily important for us to recover and then to want to serve in terms of bringing some of that uh, from my own translation process and so on uh, into the marketplace so that people are, are grounded in the authoritative sources of the tradition and then also can feel free to innovate and to modify and to express their own insight or creativity or the, the particular flavor that they want to bring to the whole thing. But I, I, I am concerned many times when there is just pure innovation that mm-hmm. is ungrounded and is not connected in any way, apparently, to any form of uh, you know, authoritative source in that right. way. So. Paul, two questions. Uh, first, since you, we were talking about blue throat yoga, uh, one question is, why the name? Second is, um, for, for listeners who are not familiar with Kashmir Shaivism, can you tell us essentially what it brings to the table in the overall uh, configuration of Hindu right. or Eastern right. or Indian studies? And uh, one thing I'm particularly like you to address is how uh, how it relates to Vedanta, mm-hmm. which most commonly understood right. mm-hmm. uh, form. Right. Yeah, I mean, just very quickly, um, blue throat yoga is is a translation of a Sanskrit word nila kanta, and it it comes from a very ancient mythology of the Hindu god Shiva, where he swallows poison. And that poison is held in his throat. And we know in the chakra system, the throat mm-hmm. chakra is called Vishuddha, the place of purification. It's connected to mantra. It's connected to a whole notion of alchemy, where the, the poison of negative karmas, the poison of suffering, the poison of ignorance, and so on, the, the poison that, uh, that accrues in life, uh, and so on, is transmuted into something else, into, into nectar, into fulfillment, into realization, hmm. into, you know, uh, something. So it's a very ancient name of this process of transmutation of life that uh, appealed to me, and that term has been one that has resonated for me for a long time, Nilakanta, and so mm-hmm. I wanted to use that particular term just to symbolically kind of vibrate out that mm-hmm. particular teaching of, of, the, of the, the transmutation of life that happens in the context, in in sort of the, you know, in in the, the process of of a profound and dedicated and orderly, coherent, um, systematic practice. I'm I'm very much for the notion of an orderly and coherent sadhana in that sense. That a body of practices that that hang together rather than than are just a sort of a, an assemblage of things that have come from here and there. Mm. The Kashmir Shaiva tradition um, that originates in the north of India, in Kashmir, uh, and so on. Um, can be differentiated from Vedanta in, in a variety of different ways. Um, I think that um, 
it, rep- it represents a tradition of householder practice, and that mm-hmm. the Vedanta represents a tradition of renunciatory practice, and that, in a sense, historically speaking, in terms of the intellectual life of India, if one looks at India in the last 500 years or so, the Vedanta wins the day. I mean, I was just in, I was just in Kanchi Puram, and you have the Mata, mm-hmm. you know, of, of the great Shankaracharya there, and so on. The, the great prestigious figures of, of so-called Hinduism um, and so on come to us mainly from the renunciatory tradition and the whole idea that there was a parallel tradition of non-dual um, householder spirituality. We're not talking about just householder dharma that says about you know marriage and family and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about a spirituality that is adapted to and is accessible to those who are deeply immersed in the world that is meant to be parallel to uh, and that is as effective, as potent as the the renunciatory traditions were for those who wanted to walk a renunciatory path. And that that very distinction was something that had been mm-hmm. dissolved in a certain sense in India. And so the 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 Kashmir Shaiva tradition represents the teaching of Advaita or Advaya of non-duality of uh, you know what in other contexts we can speak about as unity consciousness, but seen from a, a perspective of the, ach- the achievement of that in the context of immersion in life, mm-hmm. non-separation from life, mm-hmm. non-renunciation <clears throat> from, from life and embodiment and so on. And that, that's one of the primary differentiations there. And that, that I, mean, I, I mean, just to add one more thing, that seems to me to be very crucial as an understanding because the, the, the renunciatory path is actually for very few. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. just that even the, the Upanishads tell us, you know, the ancient texts of of wisdom uh, that comes to us from thousands of years ago in India, the path of renunciation is really for very few. So it's kind of like, well, what about everybody else? Is, uh, what about people who are immersed in life, who are devoted to their work, who are mm-hmm. devoted to family, um, and, and so on? What is the authentic path that, co- that not just coalesces, but that supports that engagement, but that also powerfully activates a potent process of spiritual transformation? in the midst of all of that, rather than intention or in, in a kind of a, a, a difficult contradiction uh, with it uh, in that way. So right. um, it is a teaching of non-duality, but it's, it's, it, it has that aspect of it. Dennis, can I follow up on you that? Go ahead. Um, Paul, I hear you very clearly on the distinction between householder and renunciate paths. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, a lot of the gurus who who came to the West who had reached so many people, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm thinking of Yogananda, whose biography right. I'm writing, yeah. I'm thinking of a lot of the teachers who came in the 60s and 70s, um, they presumably came from a Vedantic path, and they were renunciates, but they were clearly addressing householder life. Um, so there must be some thread in Vedanta as well. So maybe there are other distinctions as well with Kashmir Shaivism. Can you get into that? I mean, I think that this is a this is a vexed area, hmm. uh, and it's definitely something where you know there there's sort of a uh, there's controversy around this hmm. this precise distinction that there even is any such thing as a separate renunciatory path of equal authority, effectiveness, and potency to the renunciatory path that stands uh, really in a, in a very opposite kind of world. They're mirror images. It's uh, sort of like in the Chinese tradition, yin and yang. Mm-hmm. They're exactly opposite from each other, even if mm-hmm. they are sort of reflections of each other. Mm-hmm. This is something that is not necessarily, even today, so widely known. Right. And that one of the, 
you know, one of the characteristics in a certain sense of if we, uh, if we sort of postulate the teaching of, of the notion of Kali Yuga, that, that in Kali, what happens in the age of ignorance, in the age of darkness, is that there is confusion. And we, and we have this, this, even in English, the word confusion means that things flow together that are not supposed to flow together, <laughs> that at the surface of life, are meant to, they're, they're boundaries that are meant to be maintained mm-hmm. in a certain way, and that perhaps, you know, at some point in time, the very existence of a householder path of non-dual spirituality was, uh, was not necessarily totally obliterated, but it, but it, it faded in its, in its um, uh, as it were, visibility and accessibility mm. also. Um, and that, um, as I said, Vedanta wins the day uh, and does represent a perspective of uh, a renunciatory attitude, a renunciatory ideology, and a renunciatory mm-hmm. sort of practices that are difficult to, to sort of uh, meld with householder life mm-hmm. in that way. And that, that I think that <coughs> if one looks and investigates a lot of these mm-hmm. traditions, one sees that that tension is very much present mm-hmm. with regard to people who are attempting to follow this. What are they supposed to do in, in terms of these various things? And I think, you know, people still come up to me. I give talks about this, and it's like even people who have started just to do asana, who somehow feel that it is incumbent on them because of their practice of asana, to somehow begin to renounce things. Mm. This, uh-huh. this all-pervasiveness mm-hmm. of this idea of renunciation as the, the matrix of understanding of spirituality, that mm. spirituality is tantamount to renunciation as opposed to spirituality being also uh, able to be understood in a context of refinement. And I think that the, the tantric tradition, the Shaiva tantric tradition, um, teaches this concept of, of refinement, the refinement of the mind, the refinement of the senses, the refinement of the breath, the refinement of consciousness in that sense, that does not require a notion of the abandonment or the, 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 the formal renunciation. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's very confusing for people. Yeah, people say, well, I'm a, householder. I'm a householder on the outside, but I'm really a renunciate on the right. inside. And it's like, ah, uh, that's a little hard, <laughs> right. you know. Uh, Paul, so Paul, to do. Yeah, Paul, you speak about refinement. You also used the expression before, spiritual transformation. You are somebody yeah. uh, like Phil and uh, 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 me who uh, have been engaged in spiritual practice for many, many decades. And, uh, exactly. And is it then, uh, are these spiritual practices in your, do you believe these spiritual practices uh, are a way to reach a goal? Is there a systematic progression towards this spiritual transformation uh, that you speak about? Uh, and are there signposts yeah. along the way that one is moving in that direction? And amongst uh, scholars and practitioners, uh, is there some uh, discussion and argument about what that goal is or if there is a goal at all? Uh, sure. I've heard all sorts yeah. of things. I've heard about the goal, and then I've heard people say, well, you're there already. Well, if I'm there already, why am I, you know, so uh, uh, your thoughts on that? Well, I think that, I mean, what you just, you know, it's you got a month, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, well, it's in short, if, somebody, if somebody's listening, inquiry, if one of our uh, listeners with, is thinking, you know, uh, all right, who doesn't practice any, uh, right. isn't engaged in any spiritual practice, why should I do it? Does it lead to some goal or is it just something yeah. to relax and, and make me feel good for the day? And that's enough, you know. Well, I mean, I think, I think it's a both end thing. I think that at initial levels of practice, there is a kind of just a practicality of wanting to deal with with one's life, wanting to deal with the stress factors of one's life, the fatigue, um, um, the various challenges of life, et cetera, and so on, that, that um, inwardness and contemplative practice and meditative practice and 
asana practice, breath work, et cetera, and so on, uh, the consideration of high teachings, all of these can make a very positive contribution at a very practical initial level. And at the same time, then, there is the elaboration of a path um, that has systematic signposts. This is this, this extraordinary teacher from a thousand years ago whose works I've been translating in Sanskrit, Abhinavagupta, who articulates in what is really a, a, the most massively beautiful encyclopedia of spirituality, he calls it the Tantra Loka, uh, light on the, the teachings of the revealed scriptures of the Tantras. Um, and, and he does talk about these various signposts, these various symptoms, um, the various transformative steps, and outlines um, in a rather complex way. I mean, it's, 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 this is what I teach about. This is what I spend my life teaching about, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, but he basically says that there are, there, there are at least four different levels of attainment that begin to happen. A person begins to have inward experience in meditation of a place of increasing silence. And that, that as long as the eyes are closed and the person is, is sort of seated in meditation, they begin to touch momentarily a place of silence in themselves. And then he says that has to modulate into a place where that silence and that potency, that aliveness, that thrilling feeling of fulfillment that comes deep inside has to begin to persist in the awareness such that it's no longer overshadowed by uh, the activity that is happening. And this can be tracked in terms of the dualistic philosophies of Sankhya and yoga, classical yoga, which is a renunciatory text, uh, the potentially Yoga Sutra, but nevertheless speaks to us about the attainment of the various samadhis and mm-hmm. so on. Now, the Tantra steps in exactly there, and it says, look, that's fine, the, the, the attainment of that state of the increasing persistence of access to one's interior wholeness, one's interior fullness, one's interior state of equanimity, one's interior strength and wisdom, uh, and so on. That's fine, but now there has to be something else, which is with the eyes open, there has to be a refinement of perception. And Abhinavagupta, this very extraordinary uh, philosopher and teacher, uh, articulates the process. He says this is where really the Shaiva Tantra is really talking about this process of refinement of the perception with eyes open. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sacralization and a divinization mm-hmm. process that says the body mm-hmm. and the senses are, are impacted by very powerful kinds of practices that begin to transmute and transform their capacity to bring us information from the outside, so to speak, and we begin to, to change our assessment of what we're seeing or perceiving, understanding or conceiving uh, in our minds and our senses, even with regard to our own feeling of our own individuality. And that then, even beyond that, eventually, there is the open-eyed realization of any object that enters our field of perception as being nothing but consciousness. Mm. And that, that when, indeed, one reaches such a very extraordinarily high state of realization or of consciousness, there is there is also an accompanying sensation or a, a, a realization that perhaps nothing has actually happened, but that, that 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 teaching or that perspective that I was always here, I never had really departed from this space of wholeness and, and overwhelming and so on, that that belongs to a certain level of realization. And that, you know, certainly in my own teaching, uh, I, I'm just very candidly critique a person who says, well, to say to someone, you're already there, is actually to do them a disservice, because yeah, right. though that may be true at an ultimate level, it does not, it does not help them. I agree. Yeah. So, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Paul, um, 
Wow, we, we, we stepped into a lot of uh, territory <laughs> here and have a little this, time this left. Could be, this could be I, the first of a to, series. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I have yeah. a, a question for you, but first uh, a, a brief statement. Um, I can't believe with all my years of, of studying the teachings that come from India, that it's only within maybe five or six years that I've even heard the name Abhinav Gupta. Yes. And, and, and from everything I can gather, that is a, 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 a treasure trove yes. that has kind of, you know, maybe because of people like you will now uh, will start to have access to uh, for the first time. Uh, it's, uh, it's extraordinary that of all the sages and saints that I've heard of, and that 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 just somehow escaped so many of us. Um, Indeed, you, and, and not just—I mean, not just in the West, in India also. Uh, the irony uh, is that Abhinavagupta's name was allied, particularly in sort of later Indian history of philosophy, with with a kind of a minor work that he did, a kind of a just a spin-off of his main teaching, which had to do with aesthetics and the philosophy of beauty and so on. And he's famous for his, the so-called Rasa theory that he articulated mm. that solves the problem of, 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 of beauty in an artistic context. But that was a minor sort of application, in a sense, of his genius and of his teachings, and that his, I mean, even the texts of this tradition uh, were, uh, many of them lost. We know from titles of texts of Abhinavagupta that there are at least 20 of his texts that did not survive the thousand mm. years that separate us from him. But fortunately, th these major texts of his teachings have survived. And I, you know, this is what I've spent my life doing. I've, mm. for the last so many years, reading and translating, this is what I've spent the afternoon working on a chapter of one of his, uh, of one of his texts. And, and this is what I'm talking about, access to authentic sources, to original mm. texts, that articulate a different perspective. We have so much of the Vedanta, we have so much of the yoga. The Buddhist world, of course, is a profusion of extraordinarily beautiful texts. Buddhist tradition, Sufism, Jaina tradition, there's so much. But this particular tradition, in fact, was really kind of a, a, a treasure house of wisdom that was apparently lost. Mm. And, you know, the story, is a, we'll save it for another day, but the story of its, of its re-emergence, in a certain sense, is... Uh, is very fascinating and very yeah. interesting. And I'm sure the, uh, the, the tragic political situation in Kashmir yes. didn't yes. help. Mm -hmm. No, uh, it didn't help at all. Yeah. Yes, um, exactly. So here's the question. You've used the word Tantra several times in the conversation. Uh, most people listening will have heard the term, um, and I'm, I would wager that uh, many people yeah. have heard the term and don't quite understand what Tantra really is other outside of, uh, you know, Sting's sex life. Uh, <laughs> um, and so <laughs> um, maybe you can explain to us what the Tantra tradition really uh, is and how it ties into Kashmir Shaivas. Sure. Well, I mean, again, this is a, it's a big arena. Yeah. There are, and, and I think we have to speak in terms of pluralities. There are many Tantras, um, and there are many levels of the Tantra. Uh, but the Shaiva Tantric tradition, which is probably where Tantra actually originates in the text of the Shaiva tradition, going back to possibly the, the 4th, 5th, 6th century, even earlier than that, the Shaiva Tantric tradition is uh, a teaching about consciousness. It's a teaching about absolute consciousness, about the totality 
of consciousness and the relationship of that absolute consciousness to individuality. The, the, you know, the famous Nyaya or illustrative example is ocean and wave and the idea of the, the oceanic totality of universal all-embracing uh, absolute consciousness, which is then known as Shiva. Shiva here is not really referring to a deity. So Tantra is a, a very sophisticated, in the Shaiva tradition, body of texts that teach us about consciousness and about why it is that we have apparently lost this absoluteness and are no longer able to experience that domain of fulfillment in very extraordinary degree. And it is, as I said before, something that that approaches this through a body of practices that are mainly, not exclusively, but are mainly focused mm-hmm. on people who are householders. And, um, and at the same time, Tantra is the, the, the place where the study of mantra uh, in a systematically, uh, intellectually, very technical way, what's called the matrika shakti, the understanding of the, the matrices of vibratory consciousness that emerge in the first sprouting of reality and the relationship of all mantras to those original energies of consciousness that, that are sprouting, as it were, as the absolute becomes the expression of manifestation of relative reality, that, that one of the hallmarks of Tantra is its very sophisticated treatment of mantra. Of course, mantra is much older, but it is the place where, if you want to talk about the, the, the Indian tradition or the, and so on, where this study of mantra goes into extraordinarily um, deep and profound um, theoretical teachings um, and, and so on. And yes, it, then it has, this, it has this teaching of of, of, um, of Shakti and Shakti Pata also, the, the notion of this initiatory descent of grace that is also a very sophisticated and somewhat nuanced teaching, but it's about the notion that says at a certain moment in life, human beings begin to wake up. They spontaneously begin to wake up. What is that? How do we describe mm-hmm. that? How do we understand that? And the, the, the Abhinavagupta's Tantra Loka is really one of the only texts uh, where this concept of Shaktipata, which is used now in the modern period by a variety of different teachers, is actually theoretically taken up in, in really great mm. systematic detail. So a teaching about consciousness, a teaching about non-duality, a teaching about, um, about realization, and also a teaching about upaya, or pathways to realization. It doesn't teach a singular pathway. Abhinavagupta's teaching is so rich that he's actually articulating four different methods or upayas that are applicable to different kinds of human beings. It's, mm-hmm. it's really quite a remarkable um, sort of thing. So, yes, Tantra, yes, in the modern parlance and, and in the adoption of certain aspects of it and so on, where people are talking about sexuality and so on and, and want to speak about that. Again, there's a lot to talk about with regard to that, confusions with regard mm-hmm. to the difference between Indian eroticism and Tantra, they're not the same thing. The Kama Sutra may have Tantric sort of influences in it, but it's not a Tantric text. It's a text about the erotic life and how to live, how to fulfill oneself in terms of sexuality, and that's not really what Tantra is about. Tantra is about how to fulfill oneself in life altogether in the context of living a life in which one is still completely embedded in the world, one is embodied, one is not seeking a kind of departure or transcendence of the ordinary condition, and, and that one is then devoted to serving as a kind of a planetary steward of, of 
what is necessary for there to happen in life rather than someone who is just checking out and leaving and in, in the most strictest sense of renunciation, where, you know, renunciates perform their own funerary rites, basically. They die, they, they, and, the, and the, the rest of their life is the kind of a, a remnant of karma that is just lived out. But, the, 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 you know, in a certain sense, they're seeking that, that ultimate transcendence, which is it's a very different attitude. Um, I'm not criticizing the renunciation. It is an extraordinarily beautiful tradition. It's just that, as I said before, it's not really meant for most people. Right. It, is, it, right. is, it is a minority sort of dimension. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul, that was a... I have to say that was a brilliant explanation of Tantra, more uh, complete than any, than any I've heard before. Uh, I have a lot more oh. questions about it, but we'll save that for another interview. But I do have one uh, final question for you, and, sure. and that is, um, you mentioned before, uh, you know, the consciousness being refined, uh, the, there being a spiritual transformation, and getting to that point where every object that comes into the awareness is seen as right. consciousness. Uh, when one reaches that state, what, what is the belief, what is the teaching uh, that uh, happens after one's body is gone, uh, one dies. Well, I mean, I think that I mean that's a that's an extraordinary question. That, that jivan mukti, which it can be defined in a great variety of ways. In other words, realization while one is still in the body, while one is still embodied, um, and then the notion that that what happens at the time of the, of the, of the relinquishing of the body uh, is really there is no change. In other words, that the, 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 the absolute state of realization that has already occurred to the highest degree possible within the context of embodiment, and that then all that is happening is just the relinquishing of the, of the mechanism or the machinery, you know, uh, the vehicle that connected us in a certain sense, but, but is, the there still, level is there of still reality. is there still perception? Is there still memory? Is there still uh, there's no. a big difference between that right. and the obliteration of the individuality, which uh, right. I, one could argue is like obliteration is obliteration that there's uh, right. n- nothing remaining. So I guess that that you know um, that's a big question and and uh, worthy of, of another one. interview. I think. Uh, uh, Phil, <laughs> any other points that, that uh, you'd like to bring up? Oh, a thousand, but uh, yeah. <laughs> we have time constraints. So, Paul, maybe you could um, fill our listeners in on uh, your activities at Blue Throat Yoga, what you do, how people can find out more about what you're um, up to. Just, right. um, if they type in Blue Throat Yoga on Facebook, they will find me on Facebook, and then uh, Blue Throat Yoga, uh, just type it in on Google, and you'll find my website very easily and my schedule and I, I basically alternate between spending long periods of time working on my translation and then I do offer weekend uh, seminars and then also I mainly what I've done in the last 10 years is offer courses of study that are from six months to a year long where people commit to studying with me and, uh, and right now I'm offering four different levels of those courses of study a kind of a an introductory level, uh, which I call entering the heart of Shiva, and then three other advanced levels as people progress. And it's a community of several hundred people who have been studying with me for the last eight to ten years, uh, and some of whom are now graduating as teachers and so on. And at the center of this, then, is uh, both um, the study of this particular tradition uh, and its teachings, the so-called Kashmir Shaiva tradition, mm-hmm. or uh, the, the technical name for it is Swatantra, the Swatantra tradition, 
and then um, practices of meditation, of chanting, of recitation, of uh, puja, of, of other uh, many, many other practices that, that we um, practice together and, and study. Um, so it's, um, yeah, and I'm in um, Philadelphia, actually, um, next weekend. So if anybody wants to immediately see me, I don't know if when this will come out, but... Yeah. It'll, it'll be too late. Yeah. <laughs> all right. But, but we'll, have, so, we'll have all your information uh, with the fine. websites and all posted up. But uh, a tremendously informative and thought-provoking interview. And uh, oh, really, so really uh, need to have you back on the show sometime in the near future. I would love it. So we can go more deeply. You guys let me know. Def definitely. Thank you so very much for your time, Paul. You're most welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, both of you. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye.